The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot, the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death boast thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Mm-hmm. That's Harriet Walter reading Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, one of the most famous of all of Shakespeare's sonnets. Shakespeare started writing his sonnets in 1593 or 1594, and although most biographical details are murky when it comes to Shakespeare, it's long been thought that he turned to poetry when outbreaks of the bubonic plague shut down the theaters in London. He wrote his long narrative poems during this period, too. Shakespeare lived in the shadow of bubonic plague all his life. He survived the plague as an infant, although his older siblings didn't, tragically. And throughout Shakespeare's career, outbreaks of the plague shut down or threatened to shut down the theaters. For long stretches of time, the theaters were closed more often than they were open. So what is a genius to do? Well, a genius sits down and makes the best of it. Shakespeare cranked out more than 150 of these 14-line beauties, nearly all of them following the 4442 format. It's very simple. 14 lines. First four, ABAB rhyme scheme, then CDCD, then EFEF, and finally GG. The argument or subject of a sonnet follows a little Rise and fall, and then a snapping shut with those final two lines. The first eight to ten lines or so are on a topic, and then there's a volta, or turn, in tone and subject, before the final two rhyming lines bring the sonnet to a finish. That sounds a little complicated, a little technical for what we like to do here at the History of Literature, but I think the form is important here. Think about how a song ends, or a journey or a life. If it follows this format, generally, it's satisfying. It's like a story. But are these sonnets satisfying to us today? That's the question. Are they satisfying for us as readers today? Not as scholars, not as pointy-headed academics, but as just general readers. I'm putting together an episode on Lorraine Hansberry, sneak preview, and I read some Langston Hughes poems, and I thought, my God, that poem still holds up. It's poignant, it made me think, it sounds great, the words match the meaning, it goes straight into my mind. It's what poetry can do. Can Shakespeare do that? I'm not asking that as a rhetorical question. We know he could. We know that he did when he was writing in his own era. Mickey Spillane said, quote, if the public likes you, you're good. Shakespeare was a common down-to-earth writer in his day, end quote. I think the author of Mike Hammer has a point. The theater was not attended by academics poring over Shakespeare's texts. The plays had to be popular. Many people have pointed out that Shakespeare's genius is there on the page, but there was no page at the time. No one was reading him. No one was dissecting his lines. There was no way to closely scrutinize his words. Not in ink, anyway. Dr. Johnson said, quote, I rejoice to concur with the common reader, for by the common sense of reader, uncorrupted by literary prejudices, after all the refinements of subtlety and the dogmatism of learning, must be generally decided all claim to poetical honors. End quote. It's a sentence is a mouthful, as usual, for our man, Dr. Johnson. 
my hero. <laughs> it's a little hard to unpack. But he's basically saying that literature doesn't have to be an exercise where those of us on the ground, we groundlings, have to defer to the literary scholars who sit in the fancier box seats. Scholars might help us. They might be able to explain certain things. If we want to get a PhD, we'd better be ready to dive into literary theory or deep textual analysis or whatever other discipline we're using to butter our professional bread. But for those of us lowlifes out here in the hinterlands, the botched and bungled, the humble podcaster and the humble podcast listener, what about us? Dr. Johnson says we should be able to read these works with common sense. If common sense doesn't do the trick, then why bother? So that is the spirit in which we're going to tackle these Shakespearean sonnets. And we're just doing one today, Sonnet 18. We'll see if that sonnet gives us anything new or interesting or exciting. Does it hold up? Does it matter? Are we reading it the way we might go to a museum to see some old rocks or bones or pottery shards, admiring them because they're old and because they once mattered to people? Or... Does the reading of these sonnets breathe life into the artifacts, letting us see the upstart crow, as Shakespeare was called, in all his plumage? Virginia Woolf said this, quote, I read Shakespeare directly I have finished writing. When my mind is agape and red hot, then it is astonishing. I never yet knew how amazing his stretch and speed and word-coining power is until I felt it utterly outpace and outrace my own. Even the less-known plays are written at a speed that is quicker than anybody else's quickest. Why, then, should anyone else attempt to write? End quote. Hmm. Virginia Woolf, with her mind agape and red-hot, she was still drawing inspiration from Shakespeare 300 years after he wrote. What about those of us 400 years later? Here's another quote from Sam Schoenbaum citing Desmond McCarthy. He said, quote, Desmond McCarthy said somewhere that trying to work out Shakespeare's personality was like looking at a very dark, glazed picture in the National Portrait Gallery. At first you see nothing, then you begin to recognize features, and then you realize that they are your own, end quote. That's a beautiful passage. I know we experience that with Shakespeare's plays. We see ourselves in them. I do that with Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet and Othello and Julius Caesar, and Macbeth, and King Lear, all of them. There are characters there, and situations, and human foibles, and simply humanity that illuminate for me the people around me, the politicians, the ambitious, the fearful, the in love, and me. My deepest secrets, my darkest nights, my highest highs, and my lowest lows are all there in Shakespeare. Are they in this sonnet? Let's take a quick break. Listen, listen, sorry. (laughs) Listen, see, we should be listening, not talking, since we can't talk. Listen to some emails and then dive into the first of our Shakespearean sonnets. Did I mention this, that this is the first? We might do this on Thursdays in August this year. How about that? Sonnet month, Shakespeare month. Why not? We could all use a little more bard in our lives than poor, plague-chased genius who maybe has some wisdom for us in our own plague-ridden times. Listener emails that Shakespeare and Sonnet 18 after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, 
Have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Just realized we didn't have the theme song yet. We'll get to it. Okay, let's get to some emails first. The first one is from Inace, who found the Jack Wilson novellas that are currently floating around people. I'm working on some new projects. Hopefully they will be available to you soon. Some new writing projects. But I did have a few novellas that I published several years ago. I was intrigued by the novella format. I felt like it's underrated and underutilized. And, well, I don't need to go into all of that now, but I was intrigued. I had a few novellas, and they were ready to go, so I put them out there. And then I thought, why don't I start a podcast to help promote these books? That was called The Jack Wilson Show. And then a few years later, I was still stuck, still spinning my wheels, and I thought, you know, that podcast gave me a chance to say whatever I wanted and to talk about books. And I'm re-examining everything about the world, so why don't I just dive into literature, my beloved literature, the closest thing I have to a religion, and talk about it on a podcast. Voila. That's the origin story of the history of literature. Okay, here we go. That wasn't planned, but it worked out. Okay, let's go. (laughs) First email. Ines. Ines is in Spain. And to ride out the quarantine, she bought a couple of Jack Wilson books, which she talks about in this email. Subject, hello again. Hello, Jack. I'm so happy I'm back. I've heard some episodes sporadically, but I've been prevented by health issues, not COVID, to hear your podcast as regularly as I used to do before lockdown. I am glad I have so much to catch up on. It's a promise of a lot of fascinating hours to come. Today, I really had to laugh. This can't be. You've been spying on me. I've started reading Stendhal, Le Rouge et le Noir, last week. I finally get to your podcast and Stendhal. I really can't believe it. Thank you. Nice to hear from you. Glad to hear you talking about Julian. You gave me the historic and personal framework of the author. I guess I will enjoy it a lot more after hearing your podcast. Not that I wasn't enjoying it before. And I wanted to tell you about my reading experience of Jack Wilson's The Race. At first, I thought I wasn't going to like it, because politics and politicians isn't a theme that I dwell much on. But as I went on reading, I couldn't stop, and suddenly I smelled something burned. It hasn't happened to me for a long time, but I really managed to burn my lunch. I guess I can hear you laughing now. (laughs) How right you are. I found it a bit difficult to read because of some American expressions I had to look up in an American English dictionary, but I really liked it. I got very interested, would you say enthused, in the relationship between the politician and the narrator and the evolution of the characters in the story. Loved it. Thank you very much for making it available to Europe. And of course... I wrote a favorable review on Amazon some months ago. I chose to make it in Spanish because I was basically repeating ideas of other reviews, and I know a lot of lazy Spanish readers who prefer their reviews in Spanish while they read in English. Not me. (laughs) That's Ines. Not me. I don't know if you will understand this, but I saved your other book until I have taken an upcoming French exam in October, postponed because of the COVID crisis, and that's how I came to Stendhal. I agree with you and your choice of books, more classics than new ones, because, well, if a book has survived hundreds of years, there must be something to it, right? I recommend Yasmina Kadras books, though. They are very hard regarding the themes, but they are really good. But you may know this author already. And greetings to Mike. I'm looking forward to what he has to say about Don Quixote. By the way, please tell him I love the episodes he joins in, and I hold no grudge whatever. After reading Mr. Wilson's The Promotion in October, Not While Cooking, I plan to read something from Thomas Mann. I didn't enjoy it as a teenager, but maybe now. I heard Mike praise him enough to want to try again. 
Love to you all, Ines. P.D. Maybe you remember. Was that P.S.? Maybe I. <laughs> Maybe it was P.S. <laughs> Maybe you remember I was reading Proust before, before during lockdown. I stopped when the boy cries, embracing the roses, all bapines, when he has to leave. It was too much while I was not allowed to leave my flat for weeks. Spain had a very strict lockdown. I'll get back some when. Well, Ines, thank you so much for your email. I hope your health issues are sorted out now. I'm glad to be intertwined with your life in this way. Choose Extendal just when you started to read him, and no, I'm not spying on you, but I do believe that sometimes these things are more than just coincidence. Whatever was in the atmosphere that made you pick up Stendhal might have been the same thing that made me choose him for a show. Maybe it was just time. The world tilts a certain way, the culture shifts... The collective mind imagines its way forward, and suddenly we all need Stendhal once again, just like we rediscover Henry James sometimes, or Jane Austen, or Catch-22, or Dostoevsky. Something about the world says, go open those books. Someone, by the way, is such a perfect literary word. It's a great 19th century word. Thank you for using it. I nearly burned my breakfast thinking about it. Next email. Oh boy, this is a good one. Nate checks in. Subject, you, Dostoevsky, and New Haven. Hey Jack, you may have been expecting me. It's now the 20-year-old Dostoevsky fan from the smallest town in the smallest state of the USA. I wanted to let you know that you are partly responsible for my desire to be a writer. The first podcast I ever listened to was your episode on Dostoevsky a while back. I was driving home from New Haven, Connecticut. My girlfriend and I had just broken up. She went to college in New York, so we met halfway, and it was done. (laughs) What a sentence. We met halfway, and it was done. I used to watch her as she left on the train every time we met up during the semester. She had always looked back at me through the window as the train glided into the night, but not this night. And the absence of her gaze through the box windows shattered me. Mm, Poor Nate. We've all been there, Nate. (laughs) We've all been there. On the highway, there were only the taillights from 18-wheelers and the sound of your voice to accompany me. The asphalt appeared to me as a void. All of a sudden, you read a quote. Quote, The centripetal force on our planet is still fearfully strong, Alyosha. I have a longing for life, and I go on living in spite of logic. Though I may not believe in the order of the universe, yet I love the sticky little leaves as they open in spring. I love the blue sky. I love some people whom one loves, you know, sometimes without knowing, without knowing why. I love some great deeds done by men, though I've long ceased perhaps to have faith in them. Yet from old habit, one's heart prizes them. Here they have brought the soup for you. Eat it. It will do you good. It's first-rate soup. They know how to make it here. I want to travel in Europe, Alyosha. I shall set off from here. And yet I know that I am only going to a graveyard. But it's a most precious graveyard. That's what it is. Precious are the dead that lie there. Every stone over them speaks of such burning life in the past, of such passionate faith in their work, their truth, their struggle, and their science, that I know I shall fall on the ground and kiss those stones and weep over them though I'm convinced in my heart that it's long been nothing but a graveyard. And I shall not weep from despair, but simply because I shall be happy in my tears. I shall steep my soul in emotion. I love the sticky leaves in spring, the blue sky. That's all it is. It's not a matter of intellect or logic. It's loving with one's inside, with one's stomach. End quote. Nate says, I started to weep uncontrollably swerving into the nearest truck stop that happened to be just ahead. It wasn't the tears I was expecting to be with me on that dreaded three-hour ride home. The tears themselves contained no sorrow, as I thought they would. They contained no remnants of a two-year-long relationship. It was only an act of love. Love for Dostoevsky, love for you and your podcast, and a general, overwhelming love for life. So there I was, trembling at a rest stop somewhere between Connecticut and Rhode Island. You were a part of one of the most surreal and draining nights of my life. I got home at around 2 a.m. and opened my copy of The Brothers Karamazov. 
the book I was saving, the book I was anticipating. I was just waiting for that crescendo in Dostoevsky's work. At that time, I had only read Notes from Underground and Crime and Punishment. I opened up the book and I started reading. I guess you could say I was reading it in a Dostoevskian vein, in a feverish way, with your voice in my head bouncing off the text. Then I saw the sun rising over my backyard. I stopped and watched in awe, and I knew that everything is as it should be. That night, I knew I was going to be a writer. I wanted to do what Dostoevsky had just done for me, to lay out the pros and cons of life and ultimately come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what the pros and cons are. Without your episode, without that night, I'm not sure if it would have ever clicked. But that's life, as you said in your recent episode. It's the separation of two people who had tried to make a long-distance relationship work. But it's also watching the sun rise at six in the morning. Thank you for everything, and keep up the great work. Nate. P.S. I am about to have my first short story published, and it was inspired by the beautiful phrase of one of Dostoevsky's short stories, White Nights. So thank you again. Well, you're welcome, Nate, and thank you for this fantastic email. The Dostoevsky, wow. The impact that Dostoevsky had on you is simply fantastic, incredible, but I'm not shocked to hear about it. That man poured out his heart and soul onto the page, and when we are in that kind of a world, or should I say, when our lives reach that kind of a moment where our heart and soul are ready to burst, but they need that permission, that freedom, that inspiration to go ahead and just explode, well, that's what literature can do, right? That's what literature can do. We have to pull over sometimes and just let the tears flow, and then with our faces stained by sorrow and regret and loss and self-recrimination, we see the simple sunrise, and we are alive again to the possibility of miracle. Sometimes those miracles are big ones, like love and happiness and outrageous success, and sometimes they're as simple as a dewdrop on a leaf or an ant bending his tiny knee to climb a blade of grass. Good luck with your writing, and good luck with your life. Okay, speaking of miracles, we have a pretty big miracle today. William Shakespeare, one of the more miraculous figures in history, up there with Mozart and Einstein and Spinoza. Let's take our last break and then dive in. So I did a little Googling, best Shakespeare's sonnets and most famous Shakespearean sonnets, that sort of thing. Very loose research here, but I'm looking for broad public opinion, just to give you a sense of where today's sonnet falls, how it's been received. I can't vouch for many of these sources. I'm not that familiar with them, but Google doesn't tend to surface the truly obscure sites for searches like this. So this might give us a good broad range of... uh, Put our finger on the pulse of what people consider to be the best Shakespearean sonnets. Stagemilk.com acknowledges the subjective nature of ranking poetry before giving us their top 15 Shakespeare sonnets. Sonnet 18 comes in at number two. Not too shabby. NoSweatShakespeare.com says, quote, In our humble opinion, the sonnets below represent Shakespeare's most famous. End quote. Sonnet 18 is the first on their list. TweetSpeakPoetry.com has it as number 7 on their top 10 list. InterestingLiterature.com ranks it as number 1. ClassicalPoets.org has done this a couple of times. In April 2018, critic David Gosselin had it as number 4 on his list. A month later, Sonnet 18 fell 6 spots to number 10 on your countdown when James Tweedy put together his list. I couldn't find a top 10 list that didn't have it. As one of the top ten. Poemanalysis.com listed as number six in their top ten. ShakespeareOnline.com says Sonnet 18 is, quote, the best known and most well-loved 
of all 154 sonnets. It is also one of the most straightforward in language and intent. End quote. Now, those are two interesting sentences to juxtapose. The best known and most well-loved of all 154 sonnets. That's sentence number one. Sentence two, it is also one of the most straightforward in language and intent. You could have put those two sentences together and said the best known and most well-loved of all the sonnets because it is one of the most straightforward in language and intent. They don't draw that connection at shakespeareonline.com, but the connection is there to be drawn. One of the reasons why people love Sonnet 18 is that it's easy, easier. There are very few lines that an adult in the 21st century can't readily comprehend. And the themes are kind of basic, but also kind of designed to appeal to people who like to read poetry. It's a great example of a poem for people who love poetry. It's like those rock songs about how you want to rock all night or how rock and roll is going to change your life. Who cares? Well, people who are at a rock and roll concert do. Who cares that the poet's love will last eternally through his lines of poetry? The major theme of Sonnet 18. People who read poetry care. They're open to the idea. Is it a cliché to say that? That your poetry means that something can live forever in poetry? It kind of is now, at least. Not sure if it was in Shakespeare's day. Probably was. Probably was. Probably wasn't novel. This is a great example of a simple, straightforward poem that doesn't say anything complex or strange. It basically says, I'm in love with you. I'm going to compare you to something beautiful, a summer's day, the summer. And guess what? You're better. And all beautiful things die, except you won't, because of this poem, which captures you at the moment of your beauty. So it and your beauty will live forever. That's basically the poem, in a nutshell. It's not a hard thing to dream up. A junior high school kid could think of it, but the execution of it is so good. That's where we find the excellence, even the genius. And, stepping outside the poem a bit, we can admire the fact that it's Shakespeare who said it. If a junior high school kid said, guess what? You're beautiful, I love you, and this love will never die, because I'm writing it down, we think, yeah, that's cute. That's sweet. But you know what? That poem will probably live in a drawer for a while and then get thrown out in the trash, not to be cruel. Maybe we could say it will live on in the heart of the beloved and the glowing heart of the writer in there. Happiness will help make the world a better place for a while and all that goodness begets more goodness. And so this poem has a life even after the actual verses are commingled with the rotting food scraps and other detritus of the trash can. Maybe so. But Shakespeare is different. Shakespeare has been going strong. He's still going strong 420 years later, and he looks poised to go for another 420 years. So the beauty he describes has been etched into eternity, maybe, or at least something that's getting closer to it. Let's walk through the poem line by line to make sure we follow all of it. But first, let me tell you just a little bit about why 18 is significant here. We don't really know the order of composition of these sonnets. The order that we have is based on their arrangement in their first publication, which may or may not bear some relation to the order in which Shakespeare composed them. Or they may have been thematically designed by Shakespeare, or the theme, the thematic arrangement may have been imposed by the publisher. But we can imagine them as if they had some logic to the order, even if it wasn't designed this way by Shakespeare, or if he had no hand in coming up with the order, at the very least, it's how readers encountered them. The first 17 poems are what are called the procreation sonnets. The speaker here talks to a young man, urging him to have children, and saying that you will live on through your child. That's the theme of those 17. Your child is a copy of you, and the immortality you might gain will be through your heirs. Do we know who the young man is? Supposedly W.H., that's our clue, those initials. Some people think it's Henry Rawdsley, W-R-I-O, 3rd Earl of Southampton, and others say it is William Herbert, 3rd Earl of Pembroke. We don't need to, to dive into that debate here. In any case, Sonnet 18 turns away from this theme. 
Think about how that is in the order if you're a reader. 17 sonnets in a row and then sonnet 18, A Summer's Day. We're still in the Fair Youth sonnets, which is number 1 through 126. We're not yet in the Dark Lady sonnets, which go from 127 to 154. We'll cover those in future episodes. Talk more about that. What I want to talk about now is that this is 18, 17 in a row on the procreation theme, and then this one, Sonnet 18. It's like turning over the album side and hearing, oh, you knew I was going to talk about the Beatles, didn't you? I can never talk about Shakespeare for too long without talking about the Beatles. (laughs) I feel unfaithful. (laughs) It's like... Coming coming upon this sonnet, 18, is like turning over Abbey Road. Here's the end of side one of Abbey Road going into side two. Are you ready for this? It's the end of an almost eight-minute song. It's heavy. It's literally named that. I want you. She's so heavy. It's heavy. It's hard. It's driving. It's relentless. It's John going deeper and deeper and deeper, and the rest of the Beatles going there with him. It's like one of those enormous machines that bore into the earth, a big tunnel that it's digging. This big machine going straight down through the bedrock. And then, after you've done that deep, deep dive into darkness, you've earned side two. Inside too, I won't spoil it. We'll just listen to it now. And we'll do like the last minute of side one and then side two. It cuts off right there and then. Yes. Yes. Here we go. Ah, we don't have to live like moles. Three, four. Here comes the sun. Ah, George. Here comes the sun. George and Paul. It's all right. There we go. We don't have to live like moles, heading deeper and deeper into the darkness. We can emerge. We can emerge and turn our faces to the sun. That's what this is like. That's what this is like when we read those sonnets. 17 about procreation. Getting a little tired of that subject, Shakespeare. And then we get number 18. Okay. Ah, we read those first 17, and then just when you think the driving theme will never end, kind of like a parent who keeps hounding you to get married and have kids over and over and over, and then the 18th sonnet comes and says, hey, hey, here comes the sunshine, here comes the light, here comes some air, you can breathe again, we're just going to be young lovers in love, loving one another and letting ourselves get carried away. The first line, no problem there, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You know what the modern translation is? Shall I compare you to a summer's day? (laughs) Not much difference. Everyone can hear it. Everyone can understand it. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? It's one of the great lines in all of poetry. What's beautiful about this line is that it's perfect. The meter is perfect. You can read it in iambic pentameter. It's iambic pentameter at its best. Although you don't want to read it like that. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? But that's there. It's underneath. You read it like real speech. 
It mimics real speech, but it sounds like a heartbeat. The heartbeat is under there. Maybe it's real speech combined with a heartbeat. Ba-ba, 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 ba-ba. And yet it's got a little opening too. It's not ba-ba, 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 ba-ba. It's ba-ba, 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 ba-ba. It's a question. Our voices lift at the end. And the word day opens up that long A sound. A hopeful opening. Just like that acoustic guitar. And here comes the sun. And to frame it as a question, not just for the sound of the line, but it's so beautiful to to frame it, the sentiment, as a question. How many poets ruin poems like this by not being humble? Hey, you, my beloved, you're my beloved. Here's how I feel about it. My thoughts. That's what's important here. My verse. I'm writing. Me, 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 me. Well, this poem suffers from that a little bit, too. We'll get to that later. But not the first line. Here it's a question. What do you want from me, my dear? What does the world want from me? What does the world want me to do with this love that I have and my desire to write a poem about it? It doesn't fully belong to me. It belongs to the world, this feeling. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Nod your head if you want me to, world. I'm not going to impose this on you. I'm not begging for permission either. But I'm just humbly asking the question. What should I do? Should I compare you to a summer's day? So good. Shakespeare's first lines in these sonnets, home run after home run after home run. Next line. Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Temperate here means constant. A summer's day, lovely. But hey, things can turn. Morning might be gorgeous. Noon might be hot. 4 p.m. might be a hellish oven. 6 o'clock might be a thunderstorm. All day long, might be too windy, might be too still. It's rare that a perfect day is perfect all day long. But you, my fair one, you hit that sweet spot again and again and again. Your perfection endures. Simple. Effective. Summer days are nice, especially in England when the sun finally comes out. And you're nice too. You're lovely like that. Only you're lovely all day long. You don't change during the day. Then the next line, rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. Fourth line, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Now, he's giving us the problems with summer. May is too windy, the darling buds that come out get shaken, and summer ends too quickly, especially in England. Next two lines give us the same stuff. Sometime too hot, the eye of heaven shines. Eye of heaven is the sun. Gets too hot sometimes. We know how that is. The sun's oppressive. And often... Is his gold complexion dimmed? That's a little tricky, sort of. You can figure it out, but not if you're just listening casually. He means the sun goes behind the clouds. Come on, sun. When you're not too blazing hot, you're hiding behind clouds. It's rare that you are in that perfect state, that happy medium. Unlike my beloved. That's what Shakespeare's saying. And here's where things start to turn a little. Now it's going to turn from a straight comparison of summer to the nature of time, the passage of time, the feeling that all good things come to an end and beauty always fades and things get old or die or just change. The lines are, and every fair from fair sometime declines. Fair here means beautiful, of course. It's a little tricky, the syntax, fair from fair sometime declines. It just means things start off as beautiful and then they fall off. They decline from that point of fair. Every fair from fair declines. Here's where we have to apply some analysis for our common sense reader. I don't like poetry that sounds poetic for its own sake. I don't like inversions or archaic language. And I always think, is the poet cramming words together here? Distorting them to fit his meter? Does he make a sentence? Is he garbling it because it'll sound better? I mean, maybe Shakespeare wasn't at the time. Maybe to the Elizabethan ear, it doesn't sound that way. But I don't care about the Elizabethan ear so much, since I don't have one, (laughs) let alone two. (laughs) I've got 21st century ears. Does it read that way today? I don't want to have to read a line 10 times to get it. This one, I say, passes my test. It's simple enough. Not simple, but simple enough. I'm okay with it. I get it. Every fair from fair sometime declines. And once again... 
Once I get the hang of it, I like it. It's got that rhythm again. Ba 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 ba. Every fair from fair sometime declines. Don't read it like that. Don't be barbarous. But think it, know it. Let your heart beat to that beat. It's that heartbeat again. And the consonants here. Ev, fe, fra, fe. Ever, fair, 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 fair. It's like a shuffle with your lips. You can imagine the lover murmuring it. Sometime declines. Next line. By chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. Beauty loses its beauty because of some accident, some misfortune. That's what they mean. That's what Shakespeare means by chance. Or just because that's what nature does. The course of nature is that it changes course. Thanks to time. Untrimmed. Full stop. Beauty fades. It happens. Time takes its toll. So there we have it. That's our first eight lines of this 14-line sonnet. You are more beautiful than a summer's day. But hey, there's one aspect of a summer's day, one flaw that you might be susceptible to. Let's be real. Let's be honest here. Let's keep it real. Time. Time gets the summer's day, and by God, it's likely to get you too, my lover. You're perfect now, but time wins in the end. That's where we start the turn. That's where we start to... To feel that Shakespeare's got something a little more up his sleeve. Next line. But thy eternal summer shall not fade. Hmm. Intriguing. Line 10. Nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Wow. Owest here is owns. Wow. Two lines in a row. Giving us some promise here, some hope. What do you mean, Mr. Shakespeare? We get yet another one. Line 11. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade. Make it three. Imagine you're the lover reading this, receiving this poem. Hmm. You're telling me my summer won't fade. It's an eternal summer that won't fade. I won't lose my beauty and death won't claim me. Tell me more, magician. <laughs> what, <laughs> what do you mean? I won't lose my beauty and death won't claim me. Line 12. When in eternal lines to time thou growst, growest, grows, okay, got it. There's some grafting metaphor there. I don't care about that. That's, who cares? Grafting, you don't need a grafting metaphor to make sense of that line. When in eternal lines to time thou growst, lines to time, I think we're talking about the verses here. That's how I read it. I'm already ahead of Shakespeare, even if he thinks we're thinking about grafting, which I suspect maybe scholars have imposed. Anyway, I got it. A little cocky there, lover, but your heart's in the right place. Your eternal lines will make me live forever. I'll live in them. My lovely and more temperate beauty will live in your poetry. And then the couplet which our reader at the beginning, Harriet Walter, absolutely nails. She emphasizes how drastic this gets, the turn that this takes. It sounds like a cliche, but there's actually something bigger here, which I'll get to. Let me read the lines first. This is line 13 and 14. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see. It's a vision of the apocalypse. It's hinting at something very dark in order to give you that light. It's, I want you, she's so heavy, so we can get here comes the sun. Man, Shakespeare. These sonnets are so good. His first lines are home run after home run after home run, as I said. His final couplets, grand slam after grand slam after grand slam. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see. There are two kinds of death, aren't there? There's, there's the one that's general, that claims some of us, claims all of us, but it claims some of us every day. Every day people go down to death. And then there's the one that's apocalyptic, a death that wipes out everyone. The one that's off in the distance somewhere, off in the future. Maybe we'll blow ourselves up or drown in a flood in God's wrath or burn ourselves out of existence, 
or die out like dinosaurs. Shakespeare's not guaranteeing that his poetry will last beyond that. He's not saying, I'll build this wall that will be here for a million years, discovered by aliens someday. And as we see in a poem like Shelley's Ozymandias, anyway, great works like that might not last anyway. Hearts and minds of people who read poetry and love poetry or who tell stories or who admire beauty, that might outlast anything that you build here on earth. Poetry might last longer. But by nodding to this eternal kind of death, this metaphysical death of all human beings, Shakespeare is reclaiming the death of the individual. He says, oh sure, you'll die, I'll die, it happens, we're all doomed eventually. But until we get to the point where everyone is gone, not just us, but our grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren and grandchildren, on and on and on, unless and until that kind of death happens, the very last human dies, then you will live. This poem will live, and you will live in it. Now, if I'm the lover, the recipient of the poem, I might say, great, thanks. And next time, could you mention my name? How about that? How about mentioning my name? If I'm going to live forever. How about describing my eyelashes or the color of my eyes? How about talking about my hair? Because I'm glad I'm living forever, but I'm barely in it. Your love for me is in here. We see how much you love me, how infatuated you are, how good you are at writing poetry, your talent for metaphor, but I am barely there. Is that a valid response? It's a criticism people have made of this sonnet. I think it's getting back to that thing I mentioned earlier. Sometimes the poet writes about the beloved, but it seems to be more about the poet and the poet's feelings. So yes, I do think that's a valid response from my imaginary recipient lover. In another way, no, I don't think it's valid. In another way, we have to go general here. We give Shakespeare credit for going general. The specifics would root, would root, sorry, the specifics would root this in time, right? Anchor it in time. If this was a real person described vividly, then we might be too tied to that person who died. Only a wisp of a person, a suggestion of a person, a metaphor for a person, an abstract idea of beauty, an idealized beauty, only that kind of a person can live this kind of eternal time. Dante's Beatrice was pretty abstract, and yet pretty rooted in her time, too. This is a little different. The recipient of this poem maybe is better positioned to live forever because it's about the moment. It's about the feeling. It's about being alive. There are times when I'm alive that have nothing to do with me or my mind or my body. They don't feel that way. They feel like I'm wide open and eternal and a part of the cosmos. That's the only part of me that I think can live forever. A memory, a sensation, an impression I make on the world, right? Don't you feel that way sometimes? You think, well, you look back and you think, well, I was six feet tall and 150 pounds and I had brown hair and I was wearing a blue shirt and I had just eaten a sandwich and I was walking in that field behind the high school. And suddenly, when you think details like that, you know that guy is gone. That guy was gone before the night was over. Time does swallow us up. You describe that beautiful woman the way the snow was falling in her hair, the way she shook her head, the way the snow was touching her eyelashes, gently soaking them. But that woman's gone, you know that. So is the guy with the brown hair and the lanky frame, (laughs) the goofy grin. That guy's gone, but that feeling that the guy maybe had, like the one I had when the stars came out and the moon was high and bright and I felt excited to be alive. And I felt like I would know what love meant, how love felt. And the world was open to me and I could be part of it. I could be a part of this great big world. I could feel it. My mind could take it all in and dream and be open. And there was a way to evade death just by being open to the world. That's the level we have to be at to be eternal, don't we? The level of the pure spirit. 
where we're not physical anymore, contributing to the physical world or the economy or the community we're in, but contributing to abstract qualities like joy and passion and love. We take those moments, we snatch them from the air. And if we're a genius like Shakespeare, we convert them into 14 lines, like someone catching a butterfly and putting it in a book. Except it's not like that. It's not an object to fade. It's lines of poetry, which is more like a breath, more like a vision or a dream or a thought. Shakespeare exhales it with his pen, and we inhale it with our hearts. And through this magic alchemy, the lines do live forever. They can outlive print. They can outlive paper. They can outlive all of us poor, feeble creatures, we mere mortals who get to roam the earth for a few decades. They belong to the world now. They live like eternal butterflies who emerge in the summer, the eternal summer, where they flutter through that eternal summer air, where they show their eternal beauty forever. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, Sonnet 18. My thanks to William Shakespeare for writing that damn thing. My goodness. I did not know how carried away I was going to get. I should have known. Maybe Nate. Maybe I should blame Nate. Maybe he put me in that mood. I'm such a sap. Such a sucker for this stuff. So... If you'd like to learn more about the show, you can go to historyofliterature.com or follow me on Twitter at TheJackWilson or Mike at LiteratureSC. We are a member of the Podglomerate Podcasting Network, which you can find at www.thepodglomerate.com. We'll be back soon with some more good episodes, so please do subscribe and tell all your friends. Let's close with one more reading of the sonnet. Why not just sit back and enjoy it now that you have the keys to the kingdom? I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot, the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines. By chance, or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death boast thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.